Thank you to everyone who's been involved with setting up this microphone. It's a group effort, and we really appreciate it. Our reading today is from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 to 40, and it will appear on the screen or in your Bibles on page 1027. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84 She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of Moses, by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Here ends the reading, and I'll invite up Jeff and pray for him before he shares. Father, thank you for the chance to gather today. Thank you that we get to see the culmination of the generations of waiting, that we get to celebrate with Simeon uh, this coming of your salvation of your Messiah. Thank you for Jeff for the work that he's put into his sermon today. I pray that you would speak through him and bless his words, and bless our ears to hear well. Amen. Thank you, Miriam. And uh, yes, we're looking at a passage today, which I think you'll see. um, I just might remove this. (laughs) No, quite. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Then what? (laughs) Ah, right. We we wait for that with uh, bated breath. But um, yes, this is a, a, a wonderful little passage and obviously appropriate to the first week of the year as we uh, <coughs> begin together. This is Jesus' first week in human life and it culminates at this, this would be the day relative to Christmas Day that his parents took him on the eighth day 
to be circumcised. There are three, and actually four, uh, rendezvous that are alluded to in this this story. This is a story of rendezvous, I'd like to say, and I can see four here that I want to share with you this morning. But to understand the story, we must understand any story in context. And there are three contexts here that are critical to understanding what Luke is driving at. Luke is not doing more than just saying, well, this is what happened. It just happened. These, these are historical events. Luke is trying to say something about God's doing, what God is up and, uh, uh, about in this, this particular event. Context is everything in understanding a story, and there are three contexts here. There's the physical context that this is happening in the Jerusalem temple. That's one context that we need to have in the back of our mind. That had a lot of significance, and we'll look at the significance of that uh, a little later. And then there's a literary context that, as we've said, this happens in Luke's Gospel, which is in our book, the New Covenant, the New Testament. Uh, But there's a tension here because it speaks of events in the theological context that are still Old Testament. These people are still Old Covenant people. We must understand that. The, the fact that something is written in the New Testament doesn't mean that it's for us or go thou do likewise or believe in this for yourself. Uh, these people are living under the Mosaic law, under the Old Covenant, and there's so much here yeah, that it just, if you like, reeks of Torah, of the Old Testament law. These people are devout, and probably Luke is saying something just off the cuff here because uh, there was a lot of misinformation spread around Christ later on when the church gets going that uh, he's, he was against the law, that he was lawless. And uh, at least Luke is saying he began thoroughly under the law. For one, the parents take him on the eighth day to have him circumcised as uh, every Jewish boy would have been. And then a few weeks later, uh, there is a, a, a rite, there are actually two rites happening here at once. Uh, Jesus being the firstborn son of the mother under the Jewish law, he had to be redeemed by the payment of a five shekel tax. We don't read about the tax here, but for sure that's why they come to the temple. And five shekels is a bit to come up with when you're uh, folk who are probably just above the welfare level, as Joseph and his, his wife were. But they are there to go through the motions of becoming commoners again. There are three grades of people in the ancient world under the Jewish law. There's the unclean who break the law mindlessly or commit offences. And then there's the, the clean who are common. And then there's the special, the priests. So it's really three grades. These people are wanting to move back to commoner status by virtue of coming to the temple. That's what they're doing. And uh, the, the wife in particular had to offer a sacrifice of a lamb and a turtle dove to become a common person again that could mix with all society. And she had to offer that at God's appointed place, the temple. Now, these people obviously were so poor that there was a a concession in the Old Testament if you couldn't afford a lamb. Isn't it fascinating that 
The sacrifice for cleanliness was a lamb and a dove. I leave that with you. But uh, these people could only afford a couple of pigeons. And they would have bought them in a little cloth bag. Uh, they had to be alive and uh, bring them along to give them to the priest to sacrifice. So the blood of those pigeons, which was standing in for a lamb and a dove, which was standing in for something else, would cleanse this woman. And Joseph, by virtue of being a primary contact, was also unclean. And so you know, he would have shared receptacles and the house and what have you. And so he needed cleansing too. So that was the sacrifice. Was, 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 this is why they're there. They're, they're not doing strange things. They're doing devout things. And they're, they're in a world where their understanding of their life is that this is required by God. And it goes back to Moses. They, they really are looking backwards in time towards when these things were set up. These were Moses' laws given by God. And their whole idea of life is that the exodus was the defining event that defined who they were as people. And they look back to Moses, they look back to Sinai, they look back to the giving of the law a couple of thousand years earlier. And that's the way things always have been. When you've done something for so long, you tend to presume that that's the way it always will be. This is a, a rhythm of life, if you like, to, to do these things. And they, They've probably gone to so many feasts over their lifetime and, and that's what the devout like to do. And this defines their identity. They have a sense of who they are by partaking of these cyclical feasts that roll around year by year and nothing ever changes until this moment when a particular fellow, probably older in years than younger, rolls up and just, as they're standing in queue, ready to offer their sacrifice, bag in hand, son in arms, he rolls up in a fit of elation and he takes this child out of their arms and he begins to explain something to them about this child. Now... That, I think, would have been quite stunning. I don't know what you would have done if, if you were, uh, those of you who have young children were around uh, the shopping centres over Christmas and standing in queue to pay for those Lego games, etc. And some, some older folk, bloke rolls up and takes the child out of your arm and starts yelling at you. What would you do? Yeah, I think you'd be all ears. You'd have, a lot of, you'd have your attention. And we're told something about these first two rendezvous, Simon and then Anna, both times we're told something about their character. We're told that this Simeon, sorry, Simeon, is an ethical person. He's righteous. In his dealings with men and women, he's on the horizontal plane, right. And he, with God, he is devout. He prioritises his life with God. He is not loose with sin. But this guy has a different focus. His focus is on not on the same old, same old, the cycle of feasts, but his understanding of identity and history is focused on a future. For some reason only known to God, the Lord has given this fellow uh, a special insight that he is not going to die 
until he sees in his own eyes the hope of Israel enfleshed before him. And like someone whose team has just won their first grand final, in verse 29 he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Salvation is coming in this child that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. Now notice this, this is quite revolutionary. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to your people Israel. It's a both-and vision. This child proves that God is keeping his promise to Israel, that they have a glorious heritage, that they of all the people of God, of the people of the world, are the people of God. And that these are now being vindicated. These Israelites are now being vindicated by the very birth of this child. But the new thing that no one has ever said before, this guy points out in verse 32 that this child will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Now, no self-respecting Jew in God's holy house, the temple, would have ever said that God has a special place for the unclean, for those who aren't kosher, for those who are the enemies of Israel, for even those who trample their Roman boots through Israel, this child is for them. That's a new deal. That's the first revelation. And this fellow, in the Spirit of God, we, we understand that he, is, he is, has a very close relationship with the Spirit of God here. He then turns to Mary... And he has not so much a wonderful light revelation, but a shadow of that light will be that he's really letting Mary down gently. That this child is going to shake Israel down. He is going to upturn the apple cart of Israel. It won't be just feast days and going through the routines. And the true heart of Israel will be revealed by this child. How people stand vis-a-vis this child when he is a man will be indicative of how they stand with God. And he is going to, God is going to use this child to shake the rug of Israel and sort out who is true from who is false. And he says, and a sword will pierce your heart. And he, he, he lets it down gently. He doesn't tell her the... We don't know how much of Calvary he knew, but he knew that this child's life would bring her grief. And he's alluding to the fact that this child would not be welcomed by Israel, but would bring her grief and despair. Now, why he does that? And in fact, the question is, why God does this through him is really to let her down in a way that when the pain comes, she will know that it's part of the plan, that this is not something that the plan has gone off the rails, that the child was meant to be popular and successful and a celebrity. No, when this child is despised, she'll know that that was all part of the plan. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And that is what he is doing here. And right that minute, another person rolls up. 
as if this guy wasn't enough. The Lord always bears witness, according to the law, with two testimonies. And the second testimony comes up at this point in the form of the prophetess Anna. Now, we're told that this woman is 84 years old, but she could have been a lot older than that. It could have been that 84 years since her husband died, and she has been devoted to the presence of God all that time. She, too, is not living on a time clock of Torah, looking back to Sinai. She is living on a time clock that looks forward to the fulfilment of the promise of the Messiah. And she, too, is convinced that that promise is fulfilled right today. No one in their right mind thought that this promise would be filled in their time. This is equivalent to me standing up today and saying to you that the Lord has told me that this afternoon the second coming is happening. I'm telling you, here he is. Imagine that degree of shock. It's a shock to your level of assumptions that have been ground in by his absence. Now here Anna is a person who has opened her mouth in prophecy. Now that is a phenomenal thing because for 400 years there has not been a word of prophecy. People do not have any anticipation when there is no promise. And that's why they look back. And that's why they get into high church rituals that are full of rich symbolism but are memories of former traditions. Because there is nothing to drag you forward into the future. And this is the first prophecy in 400 years and she points out that the, the fortunes of this great city, Jerusalem, hinge on this child. And she gives a little sermon to those who are around, not so much to Mary and Joseph. But you see, hidden here in this story at this moment is a third rendezvous. And we should understand this from the cosmic point of view of the society of the Trinity, of God in his heaven. And see, this... This happens because this is the first time the second person of the Trinity has stepped foot into God's holy house, ever. And the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, whose whole purpose in eternity has been to jubilate in the love of the Father for the Son and to just revel in divine worship. That's his role. That's his goal, that's his passion. You see, he is the one that's at work here. And Peter tells us in that wonderful verse in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, he says, No prophecy ever came by human will. So these words of the, of the Spirit were not the instigation of Simeon and Anna. No prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. You see, what is happening here is that the third person of the Trinity who resides in God's holy house is just in a rendezvous with the second person of the Trinity, just as they were from eternity. And it's so good and natural and supernatural, if you like. It's so godly 
It's so natural to God for the Spirit to rejoice. And those who are his human spokespersons cannot help but to spill forth. That's what's happening here. They're not people with profound insight. They're not people who have read the hard books. They're people who are puppets of God. And they're borne along by the Spirit to recognise God in God's house. That's the nature of this day. You see, the temple story is really the story in five movements. We have the movement movement of God himself. It starts in eternity where you have that complex being who is beyond our understanding, where Father and Son revel in the love who is the Spirit. And that byplay has been happening in eternity. But a decision is made in that Godhead that there shall be glory in the Son and the Spirit, that God will be glorified in the Son and the Spirit. That's the way it is. And then God in his superabundance decides that he will make beings who are human, who are intelligent, who have the capacity to imbibe this superabundance of love that goes between the Father and the Son. That's the second movement. And you see, if you read Genesis carefully, what creation really is is the temple of God. This world we live on is actually where God had chosen to reside with the image of God. And they were to walk in a garden and enjoy the superabundance of God with intelligence and understanding day by day until that day went off the rails. And men distrusted the one who had made them for his love and glory. You know, the very act of the breath of life into dust that makes humanity in the Garden of Eden, that, that itself, that making of humankind, is a picture of what a human is, that a human is an inspirated, a spirit-breathed being made for fellowship with God, direct spiritual contact with God. That is a temple. <laughs> and that is what the, new, the Old Testament hope was. That's the second move. But that went all off the rails until we had the third move where God decided to make a people after himself and brought them out of exile to Mount Sinai, gave them the law, designed the tabernacle so he could dwell at a safe distance from humanity and set up cleanse mediators, these priests who could run errands both ways with God. And that tabernacle eventually resides when God gives them a land and becomes the temple, the third move, this temple. And you see, the Jews had this this view that despite the fact that they'd been taken out of the land, ten tribes gone once, and then two remaining. And then the two went and the two came back, and they rebuild this temple. And God's glory dwells here. They had this view that in all the world, if you could look at concentric circles of holiness, that Judah was the holiest nation of the world. Outside that was unholy. And then Mount Zion inside of Judah was the holy mount. And then inside that circle, 
intensely more holy place was the temple itself. And the temple courts were even more holy. And then there was the holy place in which the priest's vestments and all that was, was done. And then right in the middle, the holiest place in the universe was the holy of holies where the priests went but once a year. But the temple spoke, really, it was designed as a model, a little snow dome, to use the phrase again, of creation. The temple is a picture of how God would have it. But he wants us, you see, not to live in the outer court or just in Judah. God has a fourth move, a fifth move. Here's the fourth move. God begins to break out of the constraints of silence in the temple. It's an allusion to something greater that is coming. And then movement five is us, which is being alluded to here on this day. And Paul speaking again, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 2. Do you not know that you are God's temple? We have to understand ourselves through the context of what a temple is, what the temple of God is. This is God's cosmic plan. This is God's purpose for creation, that we should be a temple. And now Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you are that temple. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. Why? Because it's been his whole lock, stock and barrel plan from eternity. For God's temple is holy, not a holy place on a holy hill inside a holy room. You are that temple, Paul says. You see the incredible thing Paul is saying to us this day. And Luke was alluding to it. We have got to understand our identity as God sees us, not as we feel it. We've got to sense where we feel God's plan. We are the culmination of a wonderful dream that began in the heart of the Trinity. It was fulfilled once in creation, lost and regained at Calvary. That's who we are. We are the fourth rendezvous. Our identity, our purpose, who we are, is to be the temple where God can dwell in harmony with men. You know, to the principle, this is the principle of this story, to the extent that the Spirit yearns to unite and celebrate life with the Son on this day. To that same extent, the Spirit of the Holy God yearns to be in union with us. That's his whole purpose in eternity. He is wanted to be with us and in a way which he was never with Adam and in a way which he was not even with Christ. He unites with us by coming into us and inspiritizing us from within and he never leaves us. You know, when I was a small boy, uh, 
I sort of grappled to understand my family, my strange family on both sides. <laughs> uh, but my dad's family was a broken family and my nana was, uh, one day I'll tell you her story of conversion. But uh, she's a pretty rough lady who lived down uh, in Princess Street in Port Melbourne. And for years, my mother, every Christmas, uh, would try and do something nice for Nana. Now, Nana was a hard lady <coughs> to reach out to. <coughs> she was pretty rough and, and uh, not very delicate. Wore the same overcoat most of the days of the year. <coughs> and uh, my mother, every year, would thoughtfully try and buy a present at Christmas for her. And it would be bath soaps or it would be some nice uh, glacé fruit, um, some <clears throat> stocking, something that she'd never spend money on herself. Just as a gesture to say, you're actually a nice woman underneath. And my mother each year, I can still remember her <clears throat> on the Christmas day as we're going to drive down to Port Melbourne, Dana, my mother trying to wrap um, some glacé fruit, really big box in yellow cellophane and tie it up and it's slippery stuff and she's trying to do this on her knee in our VW Beetle as we're driving along and she's wrapping up this present, riding in the car. <clears throat> now I can have vivid memories of that up until very later years and, <clears throat> and then uh, Anna Anna died and uh, we had the my dad and I had the onerous job of trying to get the house in shape to put on the market to sell. It wasn't in great nick. And we went into the front room. She lived in uh, one room, basically. It was her bedroom, come everything. But she had this other big room, which would have been the main bedroom in the old house, that she never slept in. All that was in this main bedroom were two wardrobes. We opened the first wardrobe, and for some reason, only known to herself, she collected every Argus newspaper from about the end of the war onwards, up until the Argus went out of print. And there they were all folded over, and you could shake the cockroaches out of each one. It was a delightful job, and dust everywhere. And then we opened the next wardrobe, we thought, what'll be in this? And we opened up the wardrobe, and suddenly I remembered all those presents. <clears throat> there they were, unwrapped the yellow cellophane, the bright Christmas paper, the birthday gift, <clears throat> all categorised but never opened. You see, my nana was a child <clears throat> and a product of the Depression and then the ration cards of the Second World War and her focus was always backwards to these epochal events. And she never could allow herself to indulge in the love of others from outside herself. The hard times might come again and then I'll need the bath soaps <laughs> or I could sell those stockings for more ration stamps. And that's how she lived her life. A certain sadness hits me when I think of the lady with the one overcoat. And, uh, but you see, she's just the same as many Christians who year in, year out are just going through the motions and have a no anticipation of the breaking in of God in their life, who are indifferent 
And a Christian who is indifferent to the love of God is a contradiction of the temple principle. They are a contradiction of their own identity. And they're certainly not reflecting God's attitude to them. I want to encourage us this year as we set off to leave a little gap in your life for God. Some people might call that spiritual disciplines. I don't like that term. I really don't. And the scriptures aren't big on that because it sort of speaks of giving up something in order to be something we're not. But we don't give up in Christianity. We give in. We open the present that God places on our heart, which is the love of God who has been yearning to live life with us since Adam. And that's the privilege that we have this week. So before anything takes your attention away, give God time. Give him the time. Prioritise proximity, like Simeon and Anna. Prioritise the rendezvous that God has for you. And you might be pleasantly surprised that there are surprises on this horizon which he wants to live through with you this year. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, in the quietness of this moment, we simply want to stop talking and just open ourselves to the spirit of Jesus Christ. Lord, you already are there. You've already claimed us. But Lord, we want to say that we do fail to appreciate what it is you want to do within us and what a privilege it is to have you leading us forward into the future. Lord, this year, if we do nothing else, we simply want to notice you and to prioritise you and to sense your leading to be people of the Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ that he might shine in us as he does in the sun through the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's, uh...